are listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. My name is Adam McKeldry. I get the privilege of serving on staff here at Real Life on the Palouse. And today, today we're going to continue this new series that we kicked off last week. If you weren't here last week, we started a new series called Essentials. And our hope with this series is that we're going to begin discussions here on Sunday morning that talk about, so we can talk about what it looks like for us as followers of Christ to be living this out in the world. What does it look like for us to be followers of Christ? And we are hitting some of the essential things that we believe we need to know as followers of Christ. Last week, Josh talked about this, God's word. And he walked us through lots of different things that help us know and understand and have confidence that this is a good book and it is trustworthy. And at the end of the week, our end of the service last week, he challenged each and every one of us to become people of the text, to become people of the text, to devour God's word. To place it upon our hearts, if you remember, so that when our hearts soften, it can, and breaks open, God's word just pours in, and it does the life change that only God's word can. And that's what we started with. That was our first essential. Today, we're going to talk about salvation. And this is, was a softball toss. Thanks, Josh. This is a great topic. It is a broad topic. There are a lot of ways that this conversation can be started here today. And it is a conversation. Because what you hear today is just the beginning. Because I know our life groups this week are going to take what we discussed today and go deeper into it. And that's the way we designed our life groups. Is that so that what we talk about each and every Sunday morning doesn't stop within this auditorium. That we take it out and we figure out how we live it together. I know there's quite a few of you that aren't in life groups. For one reason or another, you have your reasons. I understand I guess my hope is that if you choose to not do the best thing for you that could ever exist in life, which is a life group, (laughs) that you will at least find some kind of a community to keep this conversation going. Because God did not design us to be walking this path with Jesus alone. He designed us to be doing it in community. That's why we provide life groups. All right, I'll get off my life group soapbox. Now let's talk about salvation. I uh, personally, so I've, I've lived the Christian life it, all, most of my life. I've been in Christianity almost since the day I was born. My parents became believers shortly after I was born. Uh, we went to church 
just about every week. I, don't, I can't remember a Sunday that we did not go to church one way or another. I, I remember going to youth group, going to summer camps, and, and, and going to, I went to a private Christian high school. Um, I was in plays. I know. I was an actor. It's shocking. For those of you who know me, you know that is really weird. But it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember, up until today, where I get the privilege of being on staff at a church. The Christian life is all I've known. But my understanding of salvation started way back when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. And I can remember, I, I, I don't remember exactly what event it was, but I remember being at a church in Missoula, Montana sitting in the front row, and it was towards the end of the event, and the, the main speaker is up there, and he's, he's talking, and he's going on, and he's talking about sin. And he's, he's saying, you know, we've all sinned. Since the day you were born, you were a sinner, and there is nothing you can do about that. And God can't be around sin. And so he has this place of eternal torment and flames and fire called hell. And if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's where you go. But that's the good news, is you don't have to go. So Jesus came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and raised to life again so that you could be in paradise someday with him. All you have to do is accept that free gift. And as I sat there as an eight, nine-year-old boy with my friend Wayne, like I started to, to get afraid and to cry. And my friend's like, what's wrong with you? I said, I, I don't know if I get to go to heaven I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell and burn up for all eternity. I don't know what to do. So my friend grabs one of the adults that was standing in the front of the room, and he brings him over to us, over to me. And he starts talking to me and asking me questions, and I just talked about, I'm just afraid. I don't want to go to hell. That doesn't sound fun. I don't want to be there. He said, it's okay. All you have to do is answer the knock on your heart that Jesus has given to you right now and invite him into your life. And I said, I want to do that. So he led me through what we lovingly call in the church world the sinner's prayer, where I confessed that I was a sinner and there was nothing that I could do to be able to stand right before God. I could not save myself. And as I did that and accepted the free gift that was offered to me of salvation, I was saved. I was relieved. And it was that moment, that experience that formed how I walked my, my faith walk out with Jesus from that day forward. For me, salvation was this moment where I got saved from Eternal torment and damnation. It was fire insurance. But as I grew 
and got more involved with church, and I went to seminary, I started to hear that there's a lot more conversation around this idea of salvation. Like, there's a lot of things that people are discussing, scholars and and theologians and just regular church people about what salvation is, when salvation happens, who gets to be saved, and who doesn't get to be saved. But the central theme is always that you're a sinner, you cannot save yourself, and so Jesus did the work and saved you from his death on the cross and resurrection from the tomb. I would imagine that many of you have a similar story, a similar coming to faith, finding salvation. And the thing that I want us to talk about today is that in and of itself, that was not incorrect. It was incomplete. The way that I came to salvation was not incorrect, it was incomplete. And I've learned that over the last decade as God has challenged me in so many ways in my faith, and my understanding of him, and my understanding of this book, he has challenged me in my way, in my understanding of salvation. One of the things that he has challenged me to think about is that salvation is not just about me. It's actually about we. Salvation is not about me. Just about me. It's about we. And another thing that he has challenged me with is that it's not just what we have been saved for or from, but what we have been saved for. Let me say that again. It is not just about what we have been saved from, but what we have been saved for. Throughout this entire book... We can see that happening, see that unfolding, that God's salvation is not just an act of saving you from something, but saving you for something. And I want to spend some time here giving you, walking you through the best example we have of what this looks like. We, if you go all the way back to the first book in this collection of books, Genesis, In the 12th chapter, we're introduced to a man named Abram. And Abram is a man that God looked down and said, this is a guy that I can partner with. This is a guy that I can use to begin my plan of restoration of all things. I'm going to use him and his family to do this. Later on, God changes his name to Abraham. But through Abraham, as you work through the book of Genesis, you're introduced to his family and you get to see this story unfold. He has a grandson named Jacob. And Jacob's name gets changed a little later too. His name gets changed to Israel. But Jacob has 12 kids, 12 boys. And through these 12 boys, this family multiplies and gets huge. It's huge. And then one day... 
Because of a famine in the land that they were living in, the whole family has to go to Egypt. And they go to Egypt so that they can survive, but they stay in Egypt because it was comfortable. And they had everything that they could ever possibly want there. But the problem was, eventually, a pharaoh came to power. And this pharaoh was threatened by the size of this family. And he did not want them to to get all riled up and start to revolt and try to take over. So he enslaves them. Starts to use them to build his own empire there in Egypt. And that is the point in the story, their story, that we're going to jump into the text here. Exodus is the beginning of this perfect picture of how God works out salvation in his word. And I want you guys to follow along with me. In your notes, you don't have the text written out. You have the addresses. You can listen as I read it or follow along with me if you have your own Bibles. But I just want you guys to hear what it looks like for God to work out salvation. I'm jumping over to Exodus chapter 6. We're starting in verse 5. So this is God speaking to Moses, who he is called and is using to go back to Egypt to call his people out of slavery. So here's what God says to Moses. He says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. The first thing I want you to notice here is that the act of salvation is purely and entirely an action of God. It was nothing that the Israelites did. God heard their cry of oppression. God heard their cry as they sat in slavery, and he chose to remember his covenant with his people. And he puts his salvation plan into motion. And as you continue to work through Exodus, you see Moses as the mouthpiece of the Lord confronting Pharaoh and telling him to let God's people go and Pharaoh continues to say, no, it's not going to happen. So God uses those mighty acts of judgment, sends plagues upon the country. And after the final one, Pharaoh relents and lets the people leave. 
And as we fast forward in the text, we find the people on the shores of the Red Sea. And there they are at the shores of the Red Sea, and they look back and they see the Egyptian army bearing down on them once again. Their old life threatening to come back and enslave them again. But God does not stop his plan of salvation just by removing them out of Egypt. Look what happens. Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14. This is what Moses says to the people when they start to complain and say, man, we should have just stayed in Egypt. It would have been better. Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Here's an interesting tidbit here. In the NIV, it says, you will see the deliverance of the Lord. Other translations either put, see the salvation of the Lord or see the rescue of the Lord. The Hebrew word that is there is Yeshua. Yeshua. Does that sound familiar? That is part of the name that God tells a young couple named Mary and Joseph to give to their son thousands of years later who will be the salvation, the rescue, the deliverance of his people. I think that's so cool. So, as we get back to the story, like I said, God could have just, his deliverance could have just been good enough, right, to take them out of slavery, and he could have just let them go. But God's deliverance, God's salvation is complete, It's complete, and so he opens the door. He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry ground. And as the army continues to try to follow them, the sea collapses down and destroys the Egyptian army. Their old way of life is gone. He has completely delivered them. He has completely rescued them from the sin or from the captivity and slavery that they experienced in Egypt. Again, that could have been good enough. But God does not just save us from something. He saves us for something. And as we continue their story through the book of Exodus, we come to chapter 19. God has brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses is interceding for the people again. And God calls Moses up and he starts to talk to him. Exodus 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord said to him, 
from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. What you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God's salvation did not end when he rescued them from slavery. He had something more for them. He gave them a new identity. He called them his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests. He gave them a new purpose to be putting God on display for the rest of the world so that the rest of the world could know who he was. They were freed from their captivity, given a new identity, and given a new purpose. That is what biblical salvation looks like. Unfortunately, they forgot that. The people of Israel forgot what God had saved them for, and so then God had to take on human flesh and walk this earth as Jesus Christ so that he could show us once again what it looks like to be a kingdom of priests. What it looks like to put God on display. What it looks like to free the captives. To heal the sick. And his work was completed. He died on a cross. He took our sins upon him and died on the cross to give us freedom. And he rose from the dead so that we could be free from that as well. What God had done for a people, taking them out of Egypt, freeing them from captivity, giving them a new identity and a new purpose, he did for the whole world through Jesus. He has given us freedom from sin and death and has given us a new identity and a new purpose. And that's something that Jesus' disciples understood, but it took them for a little while to get there. Because at first they thought, well, yeah, Jesus is coming. He's the Messiah. He's going to free us from the captivity and oppression of Rome and establish a new kingdom, just like God did with us in Egypt. That's what Jesus is going to do, but that's not what he did. He did something greater. He died and took on the sins of the world and rose again to conquer death. And he invited us into that new identity that he had created with that. 
And the thing is, is that I, I don't know if I can say it enough. I'm not going to say it enough. Salvation is not about being saved from something. It's about being saved for something. And when the disciples understood this, that God had give, Jesus had given them a new identity and a new purpose for what they were supposed to do here on earth, it changed everything. It changed everything. When they understood that was what salvation was really about. And there's one other really vital, important part about salvation that they understood. Over in Acts chapter 4, we are jumping into a moment where Peter is, and John are standing before the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of the Jews in Jerusalem. And they've just been arrested for healing somebody on the Temple Mount. And the Sanhedrin is asking him, what, by what authority are you doing this stuff? Who said you could do this? And here's part of Peter's response to that question. If he, uh, Acts chapter 4, jumping in in verse 10. He says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And that's the vital piece of salvation that they understood. That it was under no other name. That no other way can salvation be experienced except through Jesus Christ. I know there are quite a few people in our world today and some people who that would identify themselves as Christians would disagree with Peter on that. They would say, there's many ways to get to heaven. How unloving and intolerant and arrogant of you to say that you know the only way for salvation. And I understand. I get that. For somebody who is not a follower of Christ to struggle with that and trying to find a reason and a, and a, and a how to understand how they and everybody that they love and know will have the opportunity to have peace and experience paradise after death. And so they say there's many ways. And I can understand why some Christians struggle with that too. Because it's hard. Because it's hard sometimes to trust the story that God is telling. It's hard sometimes to trust that his story is a good story. 
but it is. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we have to learn to trust this story. And this story says that there is no other way to, be st- to stand before God declared righteous than through Jesus Christ. Only way. Only way. Now you might be thinking, what do we do next? For those of you who have never made that decision to accept that free gift of salvation, and you're wondering, what do I do next? How do I get saved? Maybe you heard me say that what I experienced wasn't a salvation moment. That's not what I was saying. What I experienced was incomplete, not incorrect. If you are here today and you've never made that decision to trust the story and trust that it is good and you want to accept that free gift of salvation, there's lots of text that tells us what that looks like. Romans, Paul, Paul to this letter to the Romans writes, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But that's just the beginning. It's not the end game. It's just the beginning. Because we've been saved for something, not just from something. And if you're unsure of what that for something is, well, the story gives us great examples of it. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is, is talking to a giant crowd of people and he's giving them the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for them. And at the end, they say, what must we do? He says, repent and be baptized. That's what we must do. Repent. Repentance is not the same as confession. Confession is, I have sinned, and I'm going to keep walking this path here. Repentance is, holy cow, I am on a pathway to death. I need to stop walking down this path, confess my sins to God, and turn around and return to the path of righteousness. And walk this path instead. That's repentance. That's what Peter is telling them that day. Turn away from the path of death and sin and turn to the path of life and righteousness. That's repentance. That's step one. Be baptized. Lucky for all of you, we're going to talk more in depth about that next week when we talk about baptism. And we I'm going to have a baptism night at the worship night. It's going to be awesome. And the last thing 
that I would point you guys to that we have been saved for is to be living as a community of Jesus followers. I don't have time to read this text either, but at the end of chapter 4 of Acts, it talks about how the, the community of believers were in one heart and one mind. And they were dedicating themselves to the teachings of Jesus that they heard from the apostles. And none of them had anything of need because they took care of one another. This is what changed the world. Living in a community that takes care of one another rocked the ancient world. It tore down the barriers of social statuses because people began to see one another as Jesus saw them. They began to take care of one another, love one another. They began to realize that they weren't just saved from something, but they were saved to be living out the kingdom of God here and now. Putting him on display so that the world knew and understood and experienced who our God is. That's what salvation is. A couple of thoughts I want to leave with you guys as we close today. First is this. Jesus gave his life for discipleship, not just salvation. Discipleship can only happen in community which we have been called to live out. Discipleship is how we are all standing or sitting here today. Without it, we wouldn't be. And the last thought I have is, eternal life begins right here, right now, and carries on through death. We don't have to wait to experience life. We get to experience right here, right now, the life that Jesus is calling us into. And we get to invite others into that as well. And every week, we as a church, we get to remember that and remind ourselves of that fact as we come to the table of communion. That as a community that we have been We have been rescued from our sin and we have been rescued from death so that we can put God on display, so that we can love one another, so that we can invite others into this community and let them experience who God is because we live out our salvation. And we get to remind ourselves of that. Because this sacrament reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus did in giving his life 
for us on the cross to make a way, the way, only way, to stand before God declared righteous. So, on that night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember the work of Jesus on the cross. Then after the, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. As we drink this, let us remember that the blood that was shed for us was not to save us from something, but for something. Let us remember. Lord, I want to thank you and bless you for the opportunity that we have each and every week to come together as your children, to lift praises up to you, to listen to you speak through your word. Lord God, thank you for the work with cross, for coming down and showing us what it looks like to be a kingdom of priests and inviting us into that inviting us into this free gift of salvation that you offer to us. Father, help us to remember as we walk out of here and continue the conversation that your salvation does not stop in the rescue of us from our sins and and death, Lord, but it just begins there. That you have declared us as being new in Christ, and you have given us a purpose to bring your kingdom here, to experience eternal life here and now. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.